2: Mailbag is the nothing personal word of the day. We are giving you a mailbag episode. That's when you come to us with any question you have on any topic. You can get to us on Apple by rating and reviewing and putting a question in the review. You can go on Twitter at David P. Sampson or Instagram at David P. Sampson. We'll take questions and if they're fun and interesting and Coca likes them and I like them, they'll be in the show. Hey David, we're just gonna start because we got plenty to cover. Love the show. Thanks. That's not why we're answering your question, though. I've been a White Sox fan for 40 years, and boy, you are right about how disappointing this season was. Nothing but six months of dry heaves. It's funny you say that. Maybe you heard me say that I dry heave when I'm running. I don't know why this season would make you dry heave. Anyways, I have two questions. One, what is the deal with Reinsdorf? All we know in Chicago is that he's a powerful owner. That's the owner of the Chicago Bulls and the Chicago White Sox. All we know in Chicago is that he's a powerful owner who runs possibly the least transparent organization in MLB. Well, I'll stop you there. The White Sox are far from the least transparent organization in Major League Baseball, far. You got to go to the West Coast where the weather's 72 and sunny every day. We love him for 05, back to the question. Hate him for the 94 and 97, 94 strike and the 97 white flag trade. What are your impressions of the man and his ownership style? Okay. So many listeners from Nothing Personal are, live in Chicago or fans of the White Sox or the Cubs, get a lot of questions about Reinsdorf. And I think the basis of the most questions is when I told you what Jerry Reinsdorf had told me, or I said it on a, on a radio show. I don't remember exactly where I said it. When I first was in the game and I had known Jerry Reinsdorf for many years, but I was young and I was a Nick fan and I knew him as the owner of the Bulls and he knew me as a crazy rabid heckler. And he recognized when I was gonna become uh, executive vice president of the Expos and be a part of the Expos organization and there was a time that he would, told me in a very matter of fact way that the smartest way to operate is to finish in second place every year because then your fans have hope because you're so close to first place and you don't blow your wad, that's not exactly the words he used, by winning it at all and then it's disappointment from then on if you don't repeat because fans, for whatever reason, expect you to win the World Series every single year. And I went public with that because it was an interesting thought, and I thought about that during the course of my career, and I understood the nuance of what he was saying, and people misunderstood. He was not tanking every year to finish in second place. He's trying to win his division, trying to get into the playoffs, trying to win a World Series, would love to have as many World Series as his Bulls team have championships. He has six rings, one for the thumb, the other thumb, just from the Bulls, But what he was saying is that fans are very interesting in baseball and I've come to realize that both inside baseball and outside baseball. And then I've applied that to fans of all sports where there is this crazy notion where you ignore math. And I don't mean analytics, I mean the math of losing. The math of losing is that in Major League Baseball, 29 teams lose at the end of every year. It's just a matter of when, not if some lose in may and they're done for the year because they're going to lose 100 games some get eliminated in september and then they're done some get eliminated the last day some make the playoffs and lose in the first round division series lcs or most recently the phillies in the world series what's the exact difference between the phillies and the marlins phillies finished in third in the nl east marlins finished in fourth in the nl east you could yell and scream and say, the Phillies won the pennant. That's everything. But at the end of the day, what owners are looking for and what fans are looking for, rings, parades, championship runs. If you ask Philly fans right now, they would say, hey, great year, but. If you ask the front office of the Phillies, they would say, great year, and. And meaning we were two wins away. And meaning we're in position to compete again next year. The but that the fans say is, great season, but we didn't go all the way. So Jerry Reinsdorf is the type of owner. Let me go back a little bit to give you some insight into what he was like when Bud Selig was commissioner. Bud Selig and Jerry Reinsdorf, very close friends and live in Phoenix together or have a place in Phoenix as well as Chicago slash Milwaukee. And Bud Selig ran the league. He had a very tight-knit insider group of owners one of whom was Jerry Reinsdorf because remember Bud Selig was an owner to start and when Bud Selig became interim commissioner after the owners did a coup and fired Faye Vincent they brought in one of their own as interim because they knew that he would do what Faye Vincent was not doing which is represent the interests of owners hard stop and that's what Bud Selig did for many many years and he ruled with an iron fist to those of us not in his inner circle and in a very collaborative way to those in the inner circle so Jerry Reinsdorf was someone who had a tremendous amount of power in terms of league matters one of the driving forces behind his raison d'etre is the way that mets fans feel about the yankees that's the way white sox fans feel about the cubs they feel as though the cubs are the team of chicago and that they are the ugly stepchild of the cubs just like mets fans feel like they're the ugly stepchild of the yankees maybe not anymore with steve cohn but be that as it may so when you have that syndrome where you feel as though that you have to defend yourself all the time. You feel as though you don't get the credit that you should get for the things that you do, whether it was opening a new stadium. At one time, it was called US Cellular Fields, and I'm completely blanking right now, Coca, what it's called now, but it's definitely not there, not that. And it was one of the newer stadiums to open, which means it's one of the oldest stadiums now. And uh, oh, Guaranteed Rate Field. It's so unreal that I cannot keep track of what these ballparks are named now. I used to know all of those. So Jerry Reinsdorf had accomplished a lot as a White Sox owner. He had increased the value of his team. But one thing he was never able to do was win it all. About 17 years ago in 2005, he won the World Series with Ozzie Guillen as his manager. And when he won the World Series, he, everything changed with him because he had wanted it so badly. If you ask Jerry, he would tell you he's a far bigger baseball fan than a basketball fan. He wanted to win a World Series even more than he wanted to win an NBA championship. He wanted to win a World Series even less than he wanted to win the sixth NBA championship. When you win six NBA championships, you're in a different echelon. When you win one, you're, you know, you won a championship. It's hard to do, but it doesn't make you one of the greatest of all time. In his mind, winning the World Series, whether you win one, three, five, seven, getting the one is the thing. So after 2005, he had a pretty big switch in terms of the way he thought about running the White Sox and the decisions he was making. Because the strange thing about one, while it's everything, you get this feeling inside you that you want to, it's like a drug where you want to feel it again. And what happens over time when you don't win it, whether it's one year, three years, five years, seven years, over time, that feeling of chasing tends to go away. And that's when you have a chance to get good again. I made the mistake after a World Series win to chase it not for one year, but for 14 years. And that led to bad decisions, that led to no winning because you're acting in a way that is not productive for your franchise to have stability and to have long-term winning, regardless of payroll. But Jerry instead ran the team responsibly. He never wanted to lose money. He and Bud Selig would talk about that consistently, that losing money, why would you write a check? This was Bud's favorite statement that Jerry also agreed with. Why would you write a check at the end of a season when you've gone through 162 ups and downs, and even in your best year, you're gonna lose 60 games, which means two full months of the year, you're miserable. Now, he was transferring his feelings onto every other owner because Bud Selig hated to lose. But his point was right, that you're gonna lose two months of the year even if you win 100 games. But what Jerry decided to do as the years passed and as he was getting older, and this is both a reflection of morality, it's a reflection of of desperation, it's a reflection of trying something different because what you've been doing has not been working. Because the White Sox went through a stage where they were having a hard time deciding what path to take. Then they started with getting tremendously good international players. They had a good pitching staff. Remember, they had Chris Sale. They had all these interesting players. And all of a sudden, Jerry was separating a little bit from Bud Selig toward the end of Bud Selig's reign, which ended in about 2013, and he was treating the team differently. Then something happened in baseball that changed Jerry forever. He took a position when Rob Manfred was running for commissioner against Rob Manfred. He wanted the ABR candidate. The ABR candidate is the anyone but Rob. And Jerry spent a lot of time during the years leading up to Bud leaving and retiring and Rob being named commissioner He spent a lot of time lobbying against Rob, making sure Rob wouldn't get it, collecting votes, throwing his weight around. And the reason he felt he could do that is Jerry had been empowered under Bud, had been in that circle. And when you're one of the cool kids, you don't want the head cool kid to disappear because if there's a new cool kid, you may not be in the cool group anymore. And it was pretty clear from the beginning that Rob was not going to include Jerry in his circle of cool kids. And this isn't the first time that Jerry had this feeling, but it's the first time that he lost. So I wanna explain what that means, just so you can even get more perspective on what Jerry's tenure has been like. There was a guy named Jeff Morad who was an agent who was trying to buy the San Diego Padres, made it all the way to the owner's meeting, was ready to get approved, and Jerry Reinsdorf led the insurrection to make sure that's, a, I don't want to use that word, especially after last January 6th, he led the revolt against Jeff Morad getting the votes necessary. And he collected enough votes to block that a vote was actually taken, or Their vote was not actually taken because Jeff Morad was not gonna win. He didn't have the required 23 votes to be an owner. And Jerry had led that. So he was empowered in a way that he felt if he didn't want Rob as commissioner, he was going to succeed when he didn't succeed at stopping Rob from being commissioner, that was the beginning of his slide into Tony Larusa. What a slide into Tony La Russa means is that he was getting older, he was less powerful, he was not in the in crowd in baseball, and what you do when you're feeling yourself getting older and feeling those things, you tend to want to surround yourselves with people who love you, with people who make you remind you of when you were young, people who will be appreciative and genuflect in your general direction. And Jerry didn't use to run his teams like that. That's how Tony La Russa got hired because Jerry Reinsdorf, not Kenny Williams, not Rick Hahn, Jerry Reinsdorf wanted Tony La Russa to be the manager of that team. And so there was really, the interview process was a sham. There was nothing going on other than Tony getting hired. And Jerry Reinsdorf, unlike how he would have been in the past, didn't recognize the truth that Tony La Russa was ruining his team because he didn't want to recognize it because he didn't care. And the reason he didn't care is he was so happy to have gone full circle with Tony. All that went away when Tony got sick and they've obviously moved past Tony La Russa and have a new manager coming up. So Jerry's ownership style has changed over time because he's owned the team for so long. When you own two sports, two sports teams in the same city, which he's done forever, you evolve. And sometimes you're focused on basketball. Sometimes you're focused on baseball. You're always focused on making sure that both of your teams in your city are taken care of. But my overall impression of Jerry Reinsdorf is he's a great family man. He's incredibly charitable. He's incredibly learned. And he'll look back on his life and his legacy will forever be tied to Michael Jordan and the Bulls, way more so than Ozzie Guillen and the White Sox. And he tried for so long to change that narrative and have the legacy focused more on the White Sox. But when you look back, and this is the most morbid way to do it, but think about someone's, and I've talked to you about on this show, about obituaries. What do you think the lead, and I hope Jerry Reinsdorf never passes away, but life is life. And- It's gonna happen. What will be the lead of his obituary? It's Jerry Reinsdorf, owner of the six-time world champion Chicago Bulls and the 2005 World Series champion Chicago White Sox. The Bulls will be mentioned first. He very much would rather have had the White Sox mentioned first, but there just wasn't enough winning. So for those of you who are down on Jerry Reinsdorf, I would expect you to give him an ovation even if you were not alive when he was winning the titles with Michael Jordan, think about what he's done in the community, the amount of winning he's brought to Chicago, way more than the Cubs. Appreciate that question. How do players pick their translator? Great question, sort of out of nowhere. But I think that whoever asked this question may have been watching the World Series a couple days ago. And at the end of the game, uh, six, Jordan Alvarez was, who hit that three run home run that basically won the World Series. It certainly won game six for them. Although the add on run was pretty important too, as you may recall, Red Sox fans I know do. So let me give you the backstory of translators because it's quite interesting. It used to be that when you had people in your clubhouse who did not speak english those people didn't meet the media the players who met the media were the ones who spoke english even if they were not the stars of the game even if they were not who the media really wanted to hear from that's just how it worked so they ended up being the spokesperson for other players and it did not make them happy so players why because if it's not your game you're not the starting pitcher you didn't get the walk off hit you don't want to meet the media after a game you want to eat food get dressed go home and get ready for the next day but for years there was no other choice but to have the english-speaking players meet the media and they had expressed to their union an issue we need translators because we need the spanish-speaking players to meet the media The union had two reasons for this. One, they were answering to their English-speaking parts of the union, but two, they were trying to get more attention and more airtime for their Spanish-speaking members of the union. Total side note here, not part of the question, but just keep in mind, being the head of the union in Major League Baseball is brutal. And I've criticized Tony Clark plenty. During the negotiations with the owners, I explained certain things that I would have done differently. We talked about the last collective bargaining agreement I was a part of, which was a crushing of owners, crushing players, but it's really hard to run the union because there are so many different points of view within the union. You've got the upper class, you've got the lower class, which are the utility players or the the players who aren't ever even gonna reach arbitration. The upper class, of course, are the Boris clients you've got pitchers who don't want to do anything to help hitters you have hitters who don't want to do anything to help pitchers because if you change the rules to help hitters that's going to hurt the earning power of pitchers and vice versa way harder than what goes on on the ownership side rob manford and bud selig will tell you that they spend a lot of time dealing with different agendas for owners large revenue owners and small revenue owners and the arguments that happen and they do happen make no mistake One of the reasons John Henry is not a popular owner uh, in commissioner's office is that he went from a small revenue team with the Marlins, where he would argue on behalf of small revenue teams in a very, very smart way. And the minute he bought the Red Sox, he started arguing large revenue team arguments and totally walked away from any small market, small revenue principles. And that was very upsetting. And my point of view on that always was, of course he did that. If you go from owning a low revenue team worth 300 million at the time to a high revenue team worth 800 million at the time, of course you're gonna have different thoughts about how the team should be run. So there are only 30 owners though. So at the end of the day, the commissioner answers to 30 people. Tony Clark answers to, I don't know, 1,200 people, now add the minor leaguers to that. It is a thankless job. So translators became a thing because the union wanted Spanish-speaking players to get a little bit more attention. And what we did is we would have other bilingual players or any bilingual member of the staff translating for those who spoke Spanish. So if you go back, I don't know, eight years, 10 years, If you went on the field and someone was speaking Spanish, there's another guy in uniform, whether it's the teammate or a coach, and they're translating. But then they got tired of that. So then Major League Baseball approached the teams and said, listen, we would very much like you to have a translator available for Spanish speaking players for all media requests and responsibilities. And some teams did, some teams didn't. We had a Translator in the clubhouse because we were in Miami. So we had tons of people in PR who spoke Spanish. We had tons of people on the baseball operations side who spoke Spanish and English. And so it was very easy for us to have them on the field doing translation for an interview. Then, as part of the collective bargaining agreement in 2000 and blank, 2013 maybe, or 2016, the rule was changed that every team will employ a translator. And as part of the collective bargaining agreement, Major League Baseball would pay the salaries of these 30 translators, whose sole job will be to translate. We had to submit to baseball who we were going to use. Baseball had to vet and had to agree, and then would pay their salary. Guess what we did? Sorry, Rob, you never knew this. The translator who we sent in for you to pay was on our payroll because he worked in media relations and we still had him working in media relations, but we didn't have to pay him. You were paying his salary. So thank you very much. It's not like that's worth a utility infielder, but at the same time, it enabled us to, you know, save a penny or two. So you have to hire someone. Baseball has to agree. Baseball pays the salary and the benefits. And their responsibility is to be available when the media has access to players. The media has access to players before BP, after BP, after game. There's times that the clubhouse is open to the media. And that translator has to be in the clubhouse and available. And then the media goes up to the translator and says, hey, I wanna speak to X player, let's go. Because the translator is not the translator for one player, he's the translator for all of the Spanish speaking players. Now, the interesting thing about needing a translator, of course, is that the majority of players who ask for translators actually do speak English, but it's their second language, and doing an interview in a second language is extremely difficult. And so they'd rather do it in their own language. But all of you who say that none of the players are bilingual, some players speak only Spanish. Alvarez is likely one of them. But there are other players who I've told you about, like Ichiro, whose English is great, but he'll only do interviews in Japanese. And there's many other players like that. Miguel Cabrera would be reticent to do interviews in English because he was way more comfortable in Spanish. Have you ever noticed, side note, Coke, have you ever noticed the players when MLB's doing commercials like when they've got Cabrera in a commercial, they do commercials where he's not talking? One of the reasons why and we've tried to go through this for years and we had no workaround to this issue is how do we get players to be the face of baseball where English isn't their first language or they're not comfortable speaking English? Where our country is so intolerant of people who speak with accents or miss grammar. And I'm, I'm a grammar police person, no question about it, but not when it comes to people who have English as a second language. Believe me, if I had grammar police for my French, there'd be nothing to do. That'd be a full-time job, being the grammar police. So it's very hard, we wanna have faces of baseball, but none of the sponsors would do commercials around any players who didn't have English as their first language. Remember when Christian Yelich and Cody Bellinger were so good, they had won MVP back to back years and they were gonna be the face of baseball until for whatever reason, they're both not as good as they used to be. They were doing commercials left and right. Aaron Judge does commercials you're not gonna see your Don Alvarez doing commercials in the US, no matter how popular he became during this World Series, it's just not going to happen. So the players have no say over who their translator is unless it is pre-negotiated with them in their contract. And the only time I've ever seen that happen is with Japanese players where a translator has to be hired by the team, paid for by the team, and that translator is responsible solely for that japanese player for the spanish speaking players they do not get that i would never have agreed in anybody's contract jordan alvarez i don't care who you are where we would pay to have a spanish translator for specifically one player never going to happen it would be such a terrible precedent we'd be fine and we did with japanese players but never never with spanish players so that is how translators end up with players. Players really have nothing to do with it.
3: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. Seriously. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. That's Bluehost.com Wondersuite.
0: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in.
2: David, I'm in the Bay Area, and I know how bad attendance is for the A's, so I wonder if that alone has a lot to do with the capacity of this new stadium that is being contemplated, or if there's other reasons behind it. What reasons are there for teams to simply plan on building smaller ballparks instead of trying to build mammoth venues like Dodger Stadium or Coors Field? Great question. I've never heard Dodger Stadium and Coors Field put in the same sentence. Dodger Stadium is a thousand years old. Coors Field is a new ballpark. The reason Coors Field, and they've tried to, and have successfully lowered capacity since it opened. They played when they got their expansion franchise in COCA 1998, is that when the Rockies? No, the Rockies started with the Marlins in 93, I think was their first year. And then it was the Rays and the Diamondbacks who started second. In any case, whenever it was, it was in the 90s. Before Coors Field was built, they played where the Broncos played in Mile High Stadium. Mile High Stadium has a capacity of a gajillion, and that's how many people were going to Rockies games. And so the owner of the Rockies at that time, who it was not, Monfort was not the the chief owner at that time when Coors Field was built, I wanna say it was a man named Jerry McMorris. I haven't thought about that name in forever. He thought that all these people went to Mile High, they're all gonna wanna go to, keep going to baseball games forever. We don't wanna give up any revenue, so let's make a huge stadium. That's why Coors Field is so big. But here's what happens in big stadiums. They are more expensive to operate they are more expensive to have built in the first place and the seats that make it bigger are generally not premium seats which makes your average ticket price go lower which means your return on investment for those extra seats is more difficult to explain because the bigger the stadium the bigger the footprint the bigger the footprint the more land the bigger the stadium the more concession stands the more infrastructure that you need around the stadium the more parking that you need the more public transportation, the more ingress and egress issues, all sorts of issues happen in a sold-out large stadium. For those of you who go to football games at MetLife in New York or a pro player in Miami, and you're sitting in the parking lot for 60 large after a game, you understand what I mean. Now, sitting in a parking lot, leaving a football game where you go to eight games a year, every other year nine under the new 17-game schedule, you may have a different mentality than if it's Tuesday night at 11 p.m., but owners weren't thinking that when they were building these larger capacity stadiums, they were far more focused on revenue. But they hadn't done the math properly. And as the years passed, it became very clear that the juice was not worth the squeeze. Not only because the return on investment for those seats didn't exist, but also attendance was going down. Under Bud Selig attendance went up every year and I've told you that it was all faked. The commissioner gave money to teams to buy dollar tickets to give away and count that as paid attendance. Sometimes just gave made up numbers like I used to do. But in actuality, average ticket price was going down. Attendance was going down. And so therefore gate revenue was not growing the way everyone had anticipated. So as newer ballparks were being built, newer than Coors Field, The thought was, let's create a supply and demand issue. Let's build smaller ballparks and make sure we keep the average ticket price higher and we will get the same, if not more, revenue because of the scarcity of supply. Major League Baseball used to fight that. The way it works in baseball is that baseball has to approve your stadium plan. They approve your capacity. They approve everything. The reason why Major League Baseball wanted large stadiums and was very good with large stadiums is because of October. Major League Baseball derives a lot of revenue, both on the national level that gets split with 30 teams, but also revenue to help it operate as a head office of a league. There are hundreds of employees. A lot of that revenue comes from national broadcast deals, which are based on playoffs mostly, not your game of the week during the regular season. It's based on corporate sponsorship deals, which are based in large part to postseason, and based on the pool of revenue that comes from the gate. So from Major League Baseball standpoint, they were more than happy to have larger stadiums. And if they're empty during the regular season, so be it, but you've got to be ready to fill up a large capacity ballpark come October. But eventually owners working in conjunction with public authorities and using public money realized that they had footprint issues, they had cost of construction issues, they had demand issues because attendance was not what it used to be, and they had ROI issues. And so what they did is they started making the stadium smaller. When we were putting Marlins Park together, We went from a 70,000 seat pro player down to 38,000 at Marlins Park. If I had known then what I know now, I would have made the stadium 20,000, and I'm not sure it would have been approved. Think about this concept. Basketball teams, the NBA, your favorite team, the Warriors, the Heat, take whatever team you want, just not the Nets, the Knicks. The capacity for Madison Square Ga- Garden, Gadden, 19,763 for 41 home games. Marlins Park, 38,000. That's twice the size of the garden with twice the number of games. What about that makes sense to you? I'm asking for a friend. Why don't they build basketball arenas with 38,000 seats? Is that because there's too many bad seats and the court's smaller than a baseball field? And so people wouldn't pay? No. I always used to say when people made fun of Marlins' attendance, and I mean the real Marlins' attendance, not the stuff I made up, that even real, we outdrew the Heat and the Dolphins. Of course, we had to play twice the number of games as the Heat and 10 times the number of games as the Dolphins, but what's the difference? fannies are fannies we had twice the number of fannies in our seats why wouldn't that be worth more to a sponsor why isn't that worth our ability to have the same gate revenue as the heat and the dolphins it never worked that way because we were not able to charge prices because seats that are in the outfield or down the line the view is those aren't good seats well why isn't that the same as the seats in a thirty-eight thousand seat arena where you're watching a basketball team So given that we weren't allowed to build a 20,000 seat stadium, we went with 38, as I said, hoping for a demand and supply issue. So that is the main reason. It really is not about only bad attendance. It's about what your revenue will be, what you can charge for tickets. You do all of these studies that talk about which areas you can charge what, where your premium seats are, And the cost of building out premium seats, it's not just the prefabricated concrete where you shove a seat in, it's the difference in concession stands, how food is delivered, how people are maneuvering in and out of certain areas. It's just far more expensive. So that is why teams now are all focused on smaller stadia, not just for attendance, but for all the other reasons we just discussed. Okay. As a team president, how did you balance when to get involved with the players and staff versus when to hold back? And how did that evolve throughout your career? That's a great question. This one I spend quite a bit of time thinking about. First, let me tell you what I took your question to mean. You asked, how did I balance getting involved with the players and staff? What I assumed you meant is, how did I get involved on who would be hired and fired at what level on the, in the front office? How did I get involved on who would be signed or released on the player side? How did I get involved in who would play versus who wouldn't play, people who were traded versus not traded? That is what I took it to mean. And balancing it is one of the great tricks of any leader and has nothing to do with leading a baseball team. You can lead a family You can lead a workplace where you've got one person working for you. You can lead a company with 1,000 employees, 5,000 employees, or a million employees. If you are the leader, and that was my role, I only reported to one person, the owner of the team. Everybody else in some way, shape, or form, whether it was three layers up or one layer up, reported directly to me. The higher you get in an organization, the fewer operational obligations you actually have. Your job as a C-suite level employee, as a CEO, as a president, is you are a referee, you are a problem solver, you are a macro thinker, a long-term solution thinker, an organizational direction leader, and the public face of the French of the franchise or of your company in many instances. That is the overwhelming majority of what my job was. But on the other hand, there were plenty of things that I would get involved in, and I used to determine it by money and by knowledge. I'm wondering if I should have done it the other way and done knowledge and then money, but it was always money and then knowledge. The overarching concern that I would have that would sway the balance on the seesaw one way or the other was the public nature of the decision that was being made by people who worked with me or under me, but I say with, because it really is with. There are a million things that go on during the course of a day in your team that is not gonna be covered by the media. This is pre-social media, so the balance would be far different today. Running a team today, I'm way more worried about way more things because everything is subject to become public in an instant. But that was one of the issues that I thought about when deciding when to get involved and when not to. What's the likelihood of any public discourse on this subject? Then I went to money. How much money is at stake with this decision? so as an example with our director of minor league uh with our director of international operations his job is to sign players you saw a lot of that during the world series there was a lot of graphics put on the board where all these great players for the astros were signed for ten thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars i never got involved in any of those signings i never got involved with any signings of minor league free agents who were brought in every year to fill in spots in all the minor league teams. I never got involved in lower level draft picks where you sign them for one grand or five grand or 10 grand. But a first round pick, I'm looking at video. That's why knowledge came in third. Knowledge should have come in second, which is why am I gonna get involved in a first round pick? I can't look at a video, I didn't go scout them. There are team presidents who go and visit minor uh, amateur players, but they don't know how to scout the amateur players. They just pretend they do. Gives him an excuse, I guess, to go to a high school game in California. So, money with the first round pick is in the millions. I'm going to be involved in who's on the board, who's eligible to be taken, but my input was more based on who's the agent and what is the negotiation looking like, because I'm gonna be involved in that negotiation. Free agent players, whether it was Salt Lamaki, a Buck, Bell, Reyes. I I was trying to name all the worst signings. Reyes is not a bad signing. I love you, John Buck, but we overpaid. You know that, you got the extra year. Salty, I can't even talk about. Great guy off the field, but can't even talk about it. I'm gonna be more involved because I'm gonna ask for a list of potential free agent targets. I'm going to talk to the general manager about those free agent targets, and then I'm gonna get involved with the agent and the contract and the negotiation of the contract. If there is a one-year deal that is being signed, which happened a lot every year, Ross Glode, Wes Helms, Jeff Baker, all of the guys who are brought in for utility guys, or they're brought in, if they make the team, they get a million dollars. If they don't make the team, they can ask for their release in March. You bring in a few players like that to spring training. I let the baseball people do that because I knew they had a budget, an overall budget for the payroll. And if they wanted to fill it out with players like that, That was their business who they chose. That's a really good way to evaluate how your front office is doing with decisions like that. We pretend that we evaluate them on decisions that we're involved in because we don't want to blame ourselves. But every time you see a GM fired, it's because the owner likely did more than he's telling you he did, but isn't going to fire himself. We've talked about that concept so many times on Nothing Personal. You fire first the manager, then the GM, then you trade the players, but you never say it was you. I've yet to hear an owner say that. Man, I picked the wrong pitcher this year. No. So money, and then the third one was knowledge. Knowledge changed over the years, my first few years in baseball. My first spring training in baseball, I was so happy every time we won a spring training game that I would celebrate it like it was a win because it was my first year in the game. And then of course over time, you realize that spring training results are totally meaningless. And as a fan, I always thought that they were meaningless, but yet there were standings. So my view is, let's try to win this because maybe the players will take that into the regular season or they'll get in the winning habit or all of this crap that none of it is true. Winning, this, winning spring training, as you know, I think we had to wait to see about this year's spring training winners. I can't remember who won the Cactus and the Grapefruit League this year. I want to say the Royals won the Cactus League, or that could have been two years ago. And I don't know who won the... Um, Um, Grapefruit League but a few years ago the Marlins did I know that when we won the Grapefruit League I would celebrate it we'd do a press release I think I won it once maybe during the course of my time but anyway it's a total joke so as you get older in the game and more experienced you learn to watch baseball differently you learn way more about the game on the field and off the field and then you can get involved if you choose with your baseball people as they are making their decisions the irony is It's the only business where your CEO gets involved when they have no training and no basis for getting involved. And it's the only area. Can you imagine if while Marlins Park was being built, as president of the team, I went to our head of operations, Claude Lorm, who had experience in this and said, listen, I think we're using the wrong rebar. I can't imagine why you're pouring concrete like this or putting in the bathrooms in this order It's laughable. You would never do that. If I were a construction person, then I'd get involved because I'd have knowledge. Knowledge should be the first criteria for getting involved in decisions. But for whatever reason, when it comes to baseball, it's, it's on the podium, maybe. For a lot of people, it's not even on the podium. For me, I had it on the podium, but always in third behind PR and money. In the beginning, before I realized how crazy PR could be, it was money and PR. Then it eventually switched to PR and money. So the balance that you're asking about comes with time. It comes with a lessening of the ego. So one of the things about involvement is about ego. There are a lot of people who are presidents who have big egos. We all have egos. I had a big ego. I still have an ego. And what an ego does to you is it sort of makes you delusional that you know more. And that's not the definition of a narcissist. It's just that you sort of know, think you know more than you actually know. And then it's so dangerous because you're making decisions based on faulty information that you've conjured up in your own head based on you thinking that you know something that you don't have a clue about. What other business would that happen in? Like the people who are running the banking firm started off as investment bankers and they work their way up and then they take over. It's like having no training to be a CFO, no accounting training, no finance training. Your background is in marketing and all of a sudden you're named CFO of a huge company. It does, it would never happen. I forgot for a while why I was named president, and I thought because I'd run a business and been on Wall Street in an investment advisory capacity that I knew how to tell the difference between a curveball and a slider, and that I could tell you whether a pitcher was gonna be good or a player was gonna be good when they were 18 years old, and I could tell you what they'd look like in seven years. It's, it's like a joke. I should do it again, Coca. I think that I would do it totally differently. Maybe we win more with an outfield of Yellich Stan, and Ozuna. Anyway, the balance changed over the years. It evolved in my last year in 17, which was the year after 16. How's that for good info? The year after Jose Fernandez passed away. And I remember that was my maximum involvement as we were deciding that we did not want to rebuild and we were going to try to win again, even in spite of losing our best pitcher. And I just remember thinking that I deserved the right to be more involved because I'd been around for 17 years. That was my 18th season. And that the experience should give me that right. Not sure it works that way. Well, thank you. Thank you for those questions. We'll do another mailbag episode soon, I promise. Like really soon. It's just business. This is Nothing Personal.
1: mypatriotsupply.com